Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Praise your name. We glorify you for your kind, your gracious towards your people. We thank you, Lord, for our Lord and Savior and what he accomplished to redeem his people. We thank you for the wonderful gospel of grace by which, by his righteousness, by his imputed righteousness, we have a standing before you as holy and blameless. Lord, this is the testimony that the Holy Spirit continues to bear to us by the teaching of the scriptures. Now, Lord, we pray again that you may recover this doctrine to your people by the teaching of the scriptures, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And I pray now that you bless this teaching, that those who may hear may see and understand and believe and repent to the truth of Christ and how salvation actually works. I pray and I thank you and ask for your blessing. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, brethren. I am going to be, we are going to be trying to find, we are going to be trying to get some understanding of the doctrine of imputation, especially as it regards to the imputation of sin to Christ. What does that mean? And in what manner was Christ made sin? And so the title of this message is, How Was Christ Made Sin? This would be a very, very important question for us as gospel believers and preachers and teachers to answer correctly from the scriptures. For there are many traditions that have arisen because of an improper understanding of what God has been teaching and who Christ is, because it just does not stop at, well, this is how I think Christ was made sin. Whatever understanding we have, it has to respect the nature and person of Christ. So we are going to be working Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, but it's going to take a lot of work to get to it. It's going to take at least an hour, 15 minutes before I even get to that verse because there's a lot of background that I have to develop always as far as I am concerned, as far as I think when people get some things wrong is because they've overlooked some aspect of what God has said. And so we have to understand the work of salvation. We have to understand what God is doing in salvation because when we forget those pieces, then our puzzle does not come out right. We end up teaching and holding to things that are not correct about the person and work of Christ. So we'll begin with reading Second Corinthians 5.21, which says, For he made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. For he made him, God made him, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The work of salvation has many moving parts, and if we deny one aspect that is true about Christ, then we have to deny some aspect of his work. And when we do that, we end up with a gospel that saves no one. The sinlessness of Christ is important to his qualification and ability to accomplish salvation. And so whatever understanding one may have of how Christ was made sin, 
if we believe that Jesus was made sin, then that understanding cannot mean that he was changed in some aspect of his moral character as to make him a sinner. Because if we understand things that way, then we have not understood the teaching, the theology of the whole Bible, and we have not understood the gospel. For the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is united in its testimony that Jesus Christ is God and is therefore sinless. And if we get the identity and person and nature of Christ wrong, it does not matter what else we have to say that is correct about him. We will be drinking from a poisoned well and we are of all men miserable. The person and nature and integrity of Christ are what drive the gospel, its accomplishment, its perfection, its security, its hope. It drives everything about the gospel. And the work of Christ is in the person of Christ. They are inseparable because the work derives its merit. The work of Christ has merit. It has virtue by reason of who performed it. We can say, oh, Muhammad or Confucius or some other person, Gandhi, did the same things as Christ did. But there's a huge problem. Because of who they are as men, they can't accomplish salvation, not even for themselves. So the work of Christ is important because of who he is. So the gospel tells us how the merits of Christ are communicated to the sinner. It tells us how a sinner is made righteous before a holy God by the work of Christ. And in this gospel, God is revealing to us how he is forever determined to settle the matter of sin and that is in his own courts and by his doing. By his doing, we are in Christ Jesus who became to us what? Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I'll give you an example. The transmission of the car is the way, is the means by which power from the engine is communicated to the wheels so that they can spin, so that they can move and get the car moving. In like manner, the heart of the gospel is substitutionary atonement and imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And this substitutional atonement and imputation speak to how God transacts all things pertaining to righteousness with respect to the sinner and satisfaction with respect to himself. And by substitutional atonement, we simply mean Christ standing on behalf of taking the place of his people as their representative in the work of reconciling them to God and satisfying the justice of God as demanded by his law. And as representative of his people, Christ became their surety. Jesus Christ is the surety of his people by appointment, 
by God himself. And the surety is one who stands in the place of another to assume the liabilities and obligations of the one for whom they stood in whatever transaction. And Christ became our surety by oath. And so he was bound in the covenant of grace to perform all the requirements stipulated by the Father to present his people holy and blameless before him. And this is not legal mumbo-jumbo, as some may claim. This is the reality of how God determined to save sinners. The separation between man and God happened because of sin, happened because of the sin of Adam. And God proposed to deal with the matter by way of representation by his son standing as the surety, mediator, and covenant of his people so that all the terms of salvation were to be performed or were to be discharged by and in Christ. And this work of salvation was only to be performed by Christ because in this God was to be glorified through the glorification of the Son. In this, Christ was set forth as preeminent and preferred over all things, preferred above all things. In Christ, all things consist or hold, and he is above all rule and authority. It is this Christ, this Jesus, whom the Father loves and has given all things, including all judgment, including all judgment, that all should honor the Son as the Father is honored. The work of salvation was in service to the glory of Christ. And because salvation is a means to the end of glorifying the Son, it was never to be a man's project. Salvation does not need the help of man. Salvation does not need man's help to accomplish it. The elect are only in as beneficiaries of this work of Christ, but they do not in any way help in its accomplishment. We only participate as beneficiaries and nothing else. But redemption happened not because man sinned. This is something that people don't understand about salvation. Salvation did not happen because man sinned necessarily. In salvation, God was not responding to man. Sin did not happen by accident. Sin did not happen by accident, but it was through sin that Christ was going to be exalted in the salvation of his people. It was through sin that God was going to reveal himself to his people in the person of Christ Jesus. So sin happened that Christ may be exalted, highly exalted above all names, above all things. So that in the dispensation, according to Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.10, so that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. 
And Apostle Paul would again say in Colossians 1, 16-22, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now that is a mouthful of teaching from Apostle Paul and this teaching unfortunately the church does not really know. They think it's all about them. It's all about men coming and choosing and making Jesus something. But here we are being told that it was through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus that the mystery of God's sovereign good pleasure and purpose in Christ was revealed. Which things he purposed not in man but in himself. Which things he purposed not in angels but in himself. And so angels and men were not even consulted. Angels and men were not even consulted. So sin and condemnation and death are thus servants to the glory of Christ. Because in removing them, the glory of God in Christ is made manifest. Jesus was not revealed to us as the chief fire marshal who comes to mop up ashen fires in God's creation. And yet that is how Christ and the gospel are always presented in a lot of places. Jesus came as the God of creation who predestinated all things and holds all things by the word of his power. And if Christ holds all things by the word of his power, then sin is not something that happened in his creation when he got tired of holding things together. Jesus' muscles did not get fatigued from holding all things together. He did not take too long a nap and then woke up to hear some breaking news of what had happened in the Garden of Eden. No, the events of the Garden of Eden were the beginning of the unfolding of the mystery of Christ and salvation in him. Adam and Eve were there in the garden to set the stage of the mystery of Christ and the church, according to Ephesians chapter 5. So Adam was revealed as a type of the one who was to come, and that's Romans 5.14. And that means if Adam was a type of Christ, then Eve was a type of the church. But in this mystery, in time of salvation, Jesus Christ had to stand as surety for his bride, the church. And that means he had to bear the liability or the burden or the case of making payment for the sins of his people that caused 
the separation and bring reconciliation. As Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so for Jesus to be able to make payment for sin, there had to be a legal framework set up. And that is a covenant. Because a covenant is a legal framework that spells out the terms and the conditions that have to be accomplished or fulfilled for salvation to happen. And so for Jesus to come, he had to come in the context of a covenant. And the terms of that covenant were agreed between him and the Father. And Christ was going to come to assume the responsibility for the sins of his people for which the justice of God demanded. And so when Christ came, his understanding was, in Matthew 26, 28, he said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. For what, Jesus? For the remission of sins. So the remission of sins is salvation. It's a cancellation of sin. It had to happen in the context of a covenant. A covenant that was enacted not in the blood of bulls and gods, but by, by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. And this responsibility could not be given to Adam. It could not be given to men or the angels, but to Christ alone. It is Christ alone as the God-man who could stand to accomplish redemption and satisfaction of God's law by reason of his perfection and God's purpose in bragging about him. Salvation is about the bragging rights of the person of Christ. God is glorified in the perfection of Christ as Christ is glorified in the perfection of his Father. He's glorified in the perfection of his work. So the work of Christ is the work of the Father through the Son. (laughs) So the satisfaction or propitiation of the sins of his people, his elect, was laid on the shoulders of Christ and Christ alone. And by this transaction, Jesus was to be charged as a malefactor, as a transgressor. He was to be numbered among the transgressors, according to Isaiah 53. He was to be a lawbreaker, to be treated as such. But without actually breaking the law, Jesus was God and was not subject to the same law as was given to Adam or Moses. His taking up of human flesh was so that he could be made subject to the law, that he may be condemned by it, that by that condemnation he would accomplish our justification. The condemnation of Christ was to our justification. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, Apostle Paul writes and says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See the ordering, the fullness of time, which means God had appointed the exact time that this had to happen. He appointed the person by whom he was going to accomplish this. So he sent forth his son, and he 
already purposed how the son was going to come, born of a woman. Why born of a woman? That he may be born under the law. But for what purpose? That he may redeem those who were under the law. For what reason? That we might receive the adoption as sons. So the law had already been broken before Christ came in the flesh. Sin and death had already entered the world through Adam. And so Jesus could not come and break the law again that he may be charged as guilty. If Jesus had come and sinned, then he would have been in the same situation as anybody born in Adam. And that means he would also would have been under condemnation for his own sins. And that would have defeated the purpose of God in sending him and would have left man in the helpless state of sin and condemnation. But there are other reasons why Christ could not be a sinner, which I shall develop and discuss a little later in the teaching. But Christ was to appear to save his people from their sins by way of representation and a surety in the context of the covenant of grace. Representation as surety in the covenant of grace. Fallen angels fell individually, but man fell representatively in Adam and in union with Adam, and so man could only be saved representatively. This is very important understanding. And the recognition of substitutionary atonement, one person dying in the place of another for the benefit of another, was made possible by the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is not a doctrine that was invented by man. This is not a doctrine that came by the wisdom of man. This is God's doctrine from eternity because it is the heart of how God transacts matters of salvation. Imputation is the only way to transact salvation if salvation has to be by grace alone to the glory of God alone. If salvation is not to be of works, then imputation is the only way by which a sinner can be justified, can be made right before a holy and righteous God. And so imputation of righteousness by default excludes works in the accomplishing of righteousness. The imputation of righteousness through faith alone, not just through faith, but through faith alone is what ensures that Christ stands alone, Christ stands exalted as the exalted one. Imputation of righteousness ensures that grace remains grace and that no man can bust before God. But what is imputation? Imputation is an accounting term that simply means to charge to one's account, to lay to one's charge, that is to credit or to debit one's account. It means to reckon to someone the merits or demerits of another. It is thus a legal term, it's an accounting term, but accounting in a legal sense. And so it does not respect the actual movement of goods 
It does not respect the actual change in the nature or the person to whom the imputation has been done. Why? Because it is happening in the context of a court setting. It is a court proceeding. And in the context of salvation, the Bible recognizes three great imputations. Number one, we have the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. And number two, the imputation of our sin to Christ. And number three, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. But in imputation, there is another very important term that makes it work. There's another very important term that is associated, that is always assumed in the background, and it is union. Union. In the sin and condemnation of Adam, all those who were in his loins were also legally united with him. So much that God reckoned the same sin and condemnation of Adam to all of his posterity, including the corruption that came with it. Listen to Romans 5, verse 12 to 14. Apostle Paul writes and says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Sin is not reckoned, is not charged to someone's account where there's no legal setting, which is the law, legal mechanism by which the sin can be recognized and be imputed. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of who was to come. So death reigned even to us who did not eat from the tree like Adam did. But we came under the same condemnation as him. How? Why? Imputation. All sinned and died in the transgression of the one man, Adam. But how can death spread to all men? And how can all be said to have sinned when they did not disobey God? In the manner of Adam, the answer lies in representation, union, and imputation. Adam represented all men, and so all men were united to him, so that whatever he did or did not do was reckoned or imputed to them as if they actually had done it themselves. And so Adam sinned and died. And so all men sinned and died in him. So the death of every sinner is the clearest testimony of the doctrine of union, of representation and imputation of sin from Adam. You can argue about that, but you're just wasting your time. Just wait and see how long you're going to live. And if you die, then you're agreeing with the testimony of Romans 5. But since Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, Jesus was also legally united to his people, united to them not by sin, but by the decree of election. 
His people were chosen in him and he was chosen to represent his people. Ephesians 1, 4. And so he also represented them in the work of redemption. So listen to Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So the obedience of Christ was reckoned to all who were in him, who were legally united to him by the decree of election. Election is unto salvation. The election according to grace of certain persons by God is what put them in Christ. It's God who put man in Christ to be saved by him to be beneficiaries of the work and merits of Christ. And it is election that puts the elect person or persons in the position so as to benefit from the righteousness of Christ. And this righteousness is imputed to them not only to prevent sinners from boasting, but because it is impossible for a sinner to accomplish it. But not only that, God legally sees the elect in their surety and the representative that is Jesus Christ. So as far as God is concerned, one is either seen in Adam or in Christ. To be in Christ is salvation. And the gospel is preached to discover those who are in Christ. Not to find who wants to be in Christ. As is how it is presented. To get the gospel right, one has to begin and end with Christ. Not with man's choice of Christ. But see the keywords in the transaction of salvation, representation, union, and imputation. Those are very important words that have to be understood if we are to teach the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and the sin imputed to him correctly. But of major interest in this teaching is for us to determine what it means to impute as it is taught in the Bible and then to see how that means in the context of the imputation of our sins to Christ. There has been in the history of the church and even now some understanding of imputation that mutilates the gospel. Some even deny that the sin of Adam was imputed to his descendants. Others claim that imputation is some legal fiction that is no basis. Yet others claim that God could not justly condemn Christ unless he was made a sinner in some real way like we are sinners. But that is just a lack of understanding of the biblical teaching on the matter. Imputation is a critical doctrine with respect to salvation. And so it matters what we say and believe about it. It determines what we say about the person of Christ and his work and our hope 
or no hope as sinners. It matters because the gospel is the gospel because of imputation. But I want to discover and illustrate using the scriptures the manner in which sin was imputed to Christ or Christ was made sin. I shall argue and illustrate the doctrine from many angles to prove that the sin that was put on Christ was by imputation and not by impartation or infusion as some are claiming or saying. Imputation respects a legal charging whilst impartation involves the infusion into the character, into the person, that which was imparted and it results in a change of the person in some real way. I'll give an example. When a patient is in need of blood, the doctor orders a blood transfusion to be done, which means pines of blood are infused into the bloodstream of the patient, and by this they possess the blood of the donor. And if that blood has HIV or any infectious disease, then that person will also suffer or they will contract the same. But that was not the way of Christ. But unfortunately, that is how some people think it was done with respect to Christ. No, Christ was like a co-signer on a loan that we borrowed. We defaulted in payment, that is, we sinned and were bankrupt, which means we lost ability to pay. And Jesus is he who was made liable to pay by God. But his obligation did not come from his own default. He was never in arrears at any time. He became liable because he was the co-signer and surety of the loan. As we know, the co-signer guarantees the loan in the event of default. They co-sign the loan so that liability may fall on them in the event of default. And in that way, they spare the life of the person who defaulted. So they legally bind themselves for the benefit of another who could not pay for themselves. The co-signer is not the one who was delinquent or became delinquent. But as my co-signer, he is charged as if he is the one who had failed to make payment. But just as a co-signer, has to have good credit to be eligible to co-sign. And so Christ had to be righteous to be our surety. But he is made liable by a legal obligation, not by a personal default. You have to understand that. So by co-signing on my loan application, he entered into a contract to pay on my behalf in the event of me defaulting. But that does not require any default on his part. If Christ ends up defaulting in some real way, then he too now has to go to jail. But Jesus is not bankrupt. And so he comes and settles all the areas. And so by his one-time offering, he perfected forever those who are the sanctified. And with respect to Adam, the man from the earth, his sin, his liability, was imputed to his descendants and the subsequent corruption that came with it 
was also realized in them. Because like their forefather, they were all men from the dust of the earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ was not the man of the earth. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He came from heaven. He was the spiritual man. Therefore, Christ was never in the loins of Adam. And so the corruption of Adam's sin could never be imparted or infused to Christ. Because the DNA of Christ was not flowing in the same stream that was polluted by Adam. So Jesus then could only be made liable for our sin in some different way from Adam and not by way of physical generation, not by way of impartation, but only through a legal charge. Jesus by nature is not related to Adam and that is why his body was conceived of the Holy Spirit to make that break. And so with all that background, the question that I want to try and answer using the scriptures is, was it even possible for Christ to be imparted and infused with sin? If we think it was possible, then it means we do not understand who Christ is. But I'll let the scriptures speak. But I'll also try to draw some theological implications of holding to the position that Christ was made a sinner, that sin was actually imparted, infused to him. To think rightly about this matter, we have to be reminded of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ was and is the Godman. He was God in human flesh, therefore as God He was and is immutable. And many forget about this reality in their thinking of Jesus and in their thinking of sin and imputation of sin. His nature as God was immutable in spite of the human clothing that he had on. Listen to Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a clock, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Christ remains the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. That is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. The Son of God, the Logos in both his life, on the cross and after the cross. His body did not even suffer corruption like that of Lazarus that decomposed and caused a stink. But see this, sin in the Bible is only attributed to created moral beings, angels and men. Only angels and men are attributed with sin, but never God. God and created things do not exist in the same categories of being. This has to be understood. So sin is a violation, not just of some arbitrary standard, but of God's standard. And the standard of God is God himself. God is not an obligation to perform some rules, which if he fails, 
he becomes a sinner. He is not answerable to some external rules that are imposed on him by man or anyone. And so it is the folly of man to think that God is under the same rules as he has put them under. God is not like man. He can't lie and so he can't sin and that means he can't change. He says in Psalm 50 verse 21, These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. God says, you have a problem and your problem is you are reducing me to your own level. You think I'm just like you. And unfortunately, that's the view that a lot of people and preachers and teachers of the gospel are taking. But what is common between the angels and men? They are mutable moral beings. They are created beings. But Christ is not a creature. Therefore, it was impossible for him to sin because sin requires mutability. Sin requires that one be able to change from one moral state to another, that they become a sinner in the constitution of their person as what happened to Adam. Adam was innocent when he was created, and then he became a sinner. But Christ remained the same. He remained innocent all the way through. See the difference. Adam was created innocent, then he fell, and that was a change of state. Why? Because he was mutable. He was changeable. Christ unchangeable. Christ innocent, holy, and righteous all the way through, never changed. And I'm going to illustrate this doctrine. I'm going to have about four or five illustrations. This is going to be a very long teaching, so you have to be very patient with me and yourself. Illustration number one is going to be actually a chemistry illustration, an illustration from nature, because I believe that all things preach Christ. In chemistry, we have elements that are in group eight and also in group two. Group 8 elements share one thing. They have the same electronic configuration in their outermost shells. And that means they have 8 electrons in their outermost shells. And when an element has 8 electrons in their outermost shell, we say it has an octet of electrons. Octet, that's 8. An octet of electrons. And when it has two electrons in the outermost shell, like helium gas, we say it is a duplet. It is a duplet. And these electronic states or configurations are very stable. A stable electronic configuration means these elements do not readily participate in chemical reactions they do not last or corrode. And so in common language, we can say they maintain their integrity. They are not promiscuous as such. And elements that are in these two groups are called inert or rare gases. They do not participate in chemical reactions as to lose or gain electrons. And so we use them to prevent 
explosions or to create environments that are inert, environments that will exclude oxygen or anything that may cause an explosion. And so we use them to prevent undesirable reactions in certain chemical processes. So we can say these inert elements like neon, argon, xenon, krypton, helium are very stable. And so they are secure. They are happy in this state. You have to follow me. Be patient. They are the most satisfied in that state than in any other state. They do not need to bond to other elements by either gaining or losing electrons or sharing like some elements like sodium and chloride would do. But elements that do not have a duplet, that is two electrons in the outermost shell, like helium or an octet, that is eight electrons in the outermost shell, participate in reactions readily. As a result, they are very reactive or explosive. And that means they can easily be corrupted. And that is why certain metals like iron have to be protected from rusting because they will easily give up electrons to try and form a stable configuration or arrangement of electrons. And that is why we have stainless steel appliances and why they are popular is because the iron in the steel is combined with other elements to make it satisfied and so prevent rusting. But we have metals like sodium and potassium and other metals that are so reactive that they have to be kept under oil because they will catch fire just like that. So what is that saying in the context of what we are teaching? It is saying these reactive elements are not satisfied in themselves. They are highly corruptible and will do anything to be stable. And so to be stable is to find satisfaction. Now Christ is God. He is immutable. For illustrative purposes, we can say Christ exists in the stable configuration like these other elements in group 8 and 2. He is self-sufficient and so he is not seeking to be satisfied in anything or by anything that is not already in himself. His nature is the highest of perfection and therefore it can't be improved upon by anything. So his nature is not admitting of change positively or negatively. So Jesus could not sin. Remember, sin is the transgression of the law. First John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So Jesus had no ability to transgress the law because he was God in the flesh. Jesus could only fulfill the law. We have to understand that. But according to John, this is how men are driven into sin. First John 2 verse 15 and 16. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And that is how sin came in the world. Listen to Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So do you see the connection between Genesis 3.6 and 1 John 2, verse 15 to 16? But Jesus did none of this. He could not sin, for all things are his and is in need of nothing. He could not be enticed as to fall into sin because he was sufficient in himself and in his father. His, his will, his food was to do the will of the father. I'll give a second illustration with diamond, with the element diamond. Diamond is the hardest material known to man. It has what we call in chemistry a giant molecular covalent structure. You don't have to remember that. All that means is that it is formed from a network of carbon atoms that are bound together by a sharing of electrons among the atoms. And it is this sharing of the electrons that make it an octet. It does not rust or corrode when exposed to air and moisture, no matter how long you expose it to air and moisture. And diamond owes this property to its nature. It has four carbon atoms that are covalently, that is, joined by a sharing of electrons, covalently bonded to one another to form the octet. So each carbon atom has an octet of electrons around it by way of sharing. And so when you hear octet, Remember, it means stability, stability, stability. When metals rust, it is because they are seeking to form a stable electronic structure, as I said before. Now, to the application of this chemistry class to our teaching, Jesus' nature is like that of diamond. He is incorruptible. But Adam was not made of the same material as Jesus. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47 to 49. Paul Rising says, The first man, that is Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. Wow! <laughs> and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Do you see the connection? So if we picture Adam as a metal from the dust, we can see that he did not have an octet of electrons and so was liable to rust and corrode by reason of sin, by reason of the devil who was the agent of corruption. Jesus, on the other hand, was not liable to rust. He was not liable to sin because of his nature. The devil tried it on him 
but it failed. And Adam fell because of the material from which he was constructed. Adam was constructed from dust. But Jesus was the heavenly man, the spiritual man. Therefore, he was incorruptible. And incorruptibility and immortality always belong to Christ because he was always God and so he could not sin. But not only that, it means sin could only come to him one way and that is by way of imputation, by way of a legal charge, not by way of impartation. As I said, impartation is an infusion of corruption into something. Or into someone. But for impartation to work, it requires mutability of the person who receives the sin. They have to be able to change. But Jesus Christ, by reason of his immutability or unchangeableness, imputation is the only option. Now, you have to understand this. This doctrine is so important that it is worthy of. As much time as we need to give it to it. As much time as we need to give to teach it properly. Impartation with respect to sin brings about an infusion of corruption. A change of moral character. Whereas imputation brings only a legal change without a change in the substance or character of the person to whom something is imputed. And we are going to illustrate this doctrine now from the scriptures. And this is illustration number three with the golden mice and the tumors. Let us see how this doctrine was played out in the Old Testament with three illustrations. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines went to war with Israel, defeated Israel, and took the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Samuel 4, 17, we hear this. So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. So the messenger has come and is reporting to Eli, the father of Hophni and Phinehas. But very quickly they learned of their mistake, that is the Philistines, as God began to kill the people because of the ark that they captured. In 1 Samuel 5.9, we are told, so it was after they had carried it away, that is the ark of the covenant, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, a great slaughter. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So there was a plague that caused tumors and was killing people, thousands of people. Now, as to the solution, how was the plague to be stopped? Listen to First Samuel 6, verses 2 to 5. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you sent away the ark of the God of Israel, Do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. 
then he will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images, listen to this, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. So there were rats or mice that carried the plague that was killing the people and causing tumors. But now pay attention to what was proposed to make atonement. Listen to verse 4 and 5. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. So atonement had to be made by sending five golden tumors and five golden rats that were made in the image of what was causing death. Pay attention to what is being said. The plague was in the rats, not in the golden rats. The infection was in the tumors, not in the golden tumors. The golden rats and tumors could not be infected by what was killing the people. And that is what made them fit to make atonement for sin. It was impossible for the gold to be infected by the plague. And that was the grounds of their golden rats and tumors ability to make atonement and for that atonement to be accepted by God. The plague on the people of the Philistines could only be atoned, could only be stopped one way, and that is if something in the similitude of the likeness of what was killing the people had been made, but without what was killing the people. See that the images of tumors and rats were made. What is that saying? The golden tumors and rats were made from gold and they did not have the plague. They were a type of Christ. They did not have the plague in them. They were, as it were, sinless. They could not be corrupted and could not be contaminated by what was killing the people. And that is why they were able to make atonement because they had no type of sin in them. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, the incorruptible one, was sufficient to make atonement for sin because of his construction. He did not have sin in him. He was deity, and that is what was represented by the gold. No plague, no tumors on the gold, so no sin on Christ, and you have atonement. Illustration of doctrine number four, the bronze serpent. The other picture of this doctrine happened in Numbers 21, 
And in Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9, we hear this. Then they journeyed, that is the children of Israel, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they beat the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is beaten when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had beaten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What do we see? The children of Israel are murmuring and grumbling. They are in sin. God is not happy. And so he sends them fiery serpents and the people begin to die. But the people go to Moses for intercession with God. They confess their sin and say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. But they asked Moses to tell God to deal with the situation. They wanted God to remove the fiery serpents. But God says, No, it doesn't work like that. Here is how things are going to work. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is beaten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And if a serpent had beaten anyone, when they looked at the bronze serpent, they lived. What is happening? The bronze serpent became the means of atonement. What was biting people? It was the fiery serpents. What did they have in them? They had venom. But the bronze serpent did not have the venom. It was made in the likeness of the fiery serpents, in the likeness of what was biting and killing people, but itself did not have the venom at any point. And so the people lived because their sin, represented by the venom, was atoned for in this bronze serpent that did not have the venom. If the bronze serpent, for some reason, ended up with what was killing the people, then it lost its ability, its power to make atonement for sin. If the bronze serpent started biting people and killing with its venom, then the people would have needed another bronze serpent with no venom in it if they were to live. And so a Christ who was defiled by sin on him in his body, would have needed another Jesus to make atonement for him. But we cannot accept such a gospel. But see this, that in both pictures, God was speaking to the necessity of the incarnation of Christ, that he may take the nature of sinful man, but he himself not have the sin or venom or plague that was in man 
and was killing men. And so he could not at any point have sin in him. Never at any point. And so when he came, he would say in John 3, verse 13 to 15, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ is to be lifted up as the serpent, as the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent that was made of bronze that did not have the venom of the snakes. So Christ had to be lifted up on the cross without sin in his person. So Jesus is he who fulfilled the bronze serpent that gave life and the golden mice and tumors that made atonement for the Philistines. Let's have another illustration from Barabbas and Jesus. I'll give you an illustration of how Christ was made seen from the story of Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was a robber, a murderer, and political insurrectionist. He was a notorious sinner who was condemned to die. But Jesus came and stood for him, and Barabbas was set free. Now, if imputation means impartation of sin, then Jesus became a robber and a murderer and a political insurrectionist. He became a robber and a murderer in his person, just as exactly as Barabbas was. But this is not true. Jesus only delivered Barabbas from the sentence of death by taking it upon himself, taking upon the sentence itself, not the corruption of Barabbas. Jesus delivered Barabbas from the sentence of death by taking it upon himself, And in this way, he was made sin for Barabbas. And in this way, Barabbas was made the righteousness of God in Christ. And in this way, we also were made the righteousness of God in Christ. And there are many pictures of this doctrine that can be used to demonstrate this doctrine. But the truth of the matter is that Christ became sin by an act of imputation, not by infusion of sin into his person. And if we lose clarity on this doctrine, we have lost the gospel of grace and its glorious hope. But let's, let's reason again from a different angle, but with respect to salvation. Let's reason from the understanding of the priesthood of Christ, because when we are talking about the imputation of sin to Christ, we are talking about the offering of Christ. We are talking about sacrifice and the priesthood. The priesthood of Christ was different from the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. It was different from the priesthood of men. And the Levitical priesthood had some serious flaws that could not give perfection. We hear from Hebrews 7 verses 23 to 28. The writer of Hebrews says, Also there were many priests, speaking of the Levitical priesthood, There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus Christ, because he continues forever, because he lives forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to serve to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. The Levitical priesthood dies, is prevented by death from continuing. Christ is able to serve forever because he always lives. He is not subject to death. For such a high priest, verse 26, was fitting for us who is here the qualifications of the priesthood of Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Christ is, was always holy, harmless, undefiled. He never was defiled by anything. And if anyone is saying Christ became a sinner by impartation, then they are going against the testimony of the scriptures. They are going against Hebrews 7.23, that he was holy and he was undefiled and separate from sinners. Who does not need daily, verse 27, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the earth which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So the Levitical priesthood was weak. And that means the law was also weak and unprofitable because the priests who mediated the law were prevented from continuing by death because of sin. Continuing their work of representing the people before God. The Levitical priests had the venom of sin in them from the fiery serpents and the tumors from the plague of sin. And these priests daily had to offer up sacrifices not only for the people, but first for their own sins and then for the people. So the fundamental weakness of the law was its priesthood and the sacrifices. The priesthood was by men of sin who died. And the sacrifices were the blood of bulls and gods that could never take away sin. And that is what made the law unprofitable, unable to save. Because salvation requires continuity of priesthood. But continuity of priesthood needs continuity of life. And continuity of life requires sinlessness of both the priests and the sacrifice. And so Christ is the immutable and sinless son of God was eminently qualified to bring a better testament, a better covenant that had the power of an indestructible life, an endless life. And this is unique to the priesthood of Christ. And this was because he was the son of God. But not only that, as the writer already said, he was holy, he was harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. Therefore, he has ability to appear in places that sinners cannot enter in heaven by reason of their sin. Now, if Christ becomes tainted by sin in his person in any way, then he becomes unfit to make atonement as both priests and sacrifice, even his intercession amounts to nothing. He will have to do the same thing that Aaron did, make atonement for his own sins before he could do that for the people. And if that happens, guess what? Then we are 
back to the priesthood of Aaron. The priesthood of Christ is not better than that of Aaron. It's not better than the blood of bulls and goats. His priesthood will continue to suffer from the same weaknesses and that means no salvation for you and me. No salvation, no hope whatsoever. If Jesus was made a sinner on the cross by way of impartation and infusion of sin to him, then there's no gospel to talk about. It doesn't matter what else we say and claim to be Christians, we have no gospel. There's no gospel to talk about. It's a waste of time if Jesus was made a sinner in the same way that we are sinners. But here, this about the qualifications of the priests and sacrifices in the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus. In the Old Testament, the priests had to meet certain criteria to be eligible to make an offering before God. Listen to Leviticus 21, verses 16 to 23. Moses writes and says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect, listen to that, any defect whatsoever, any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. If they have any defect, they're already disqualified. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. They shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a mad face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, but the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. We have to understand what, the, what is being said. We have to read that and understand what is being said. And we have to be able to relate this understanding to Christ. This was saying Christ was the ultimate high priest who had to come without any spot or blemish, without any defect, that he may be qualified to make atonement for sin. Otherwise, no man will be able to approach. But not only that. Christ is he who also fulfilled the sacrifices that were offered. And here are some of the qualifications of the sacrifices. Leviticus 22, verses 17 to 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his free will offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male, listen to the qualifications, a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep or from the gods. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, and it shall not be accepted even when it has been offered. People have to hear that. If Christ has any sin on him, in his person, however it came to him in his person, then the sacrifice that he made cannot be accepted. 
This is verse 21. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar of the Lord. The altar of the Lord is the cross, people. It is the cross. And Christ is he who fulfills the qualifications of the high priest and the qualification of the sacrifice without blemish. Pay attention to verse 22. You shall not offer to the Lord. So those that were blind or broken or maimed or had an ulcer or eczema or scabs were not to be offered if the sacrifice had to be accepted. And this was under the law. (laughs) And all that was speaking or pointing to the perfection of Christ. We are talking about perfection of Christ, friends. We have to understand that doctrine of the perfection of Christ. If we lose that even by 0.0000 whatever percent, we have no salvation. So with all that understanding, with all that understanding, let's go up to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now that we know that Christ was sinless in his person by reason of his nature as God, by reason of his unchangeableness, his immutability, when we come to 2 Corinthians, understanding the requirements that God has clearly spelled out as to the nature of the sacrifice and the nature of the high priest as to the requirement that they should not have any defect when we come to a reading of Second Corinthians 5.21, we cannot remove all that understanding to our interpretation of the text. We cannot. Because if we do, we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know what we are talking about if we have any understanding of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that removes the understanding that has already been shared. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So who made who what? It's God the Father who appointed Christ, the sinless one, the undefiled one, He who knew no sin, sinless, righteous, holy, who was the fulfillment of all the types in the Old Testament, this one God made to be sin for us. So what does that mean? To be sin for us in the light of everything that we have learned from the scriptures. First, we have to define what sin is. Sin is the Greek word hamatia, which means to miss the mark. Sin is also defined as the transgression of the law. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. So how then did Jesus become sin? How then did Jesus fall short of the glory of God? How did he fall short of the glory of God? How did he miss the mark? When all testimony of scripture says, He was righteous. How then did Jesus become sin? How was he made sin? There are two ways. Either sin was infused or imparted to him so that he became guilty of the sin that was put into his person. Corruption 
of the nature of Christ, of the body and moral constitution of Christ, like all who are in Adam. In which case, according to Leviticus 21-22, that would have automatically disqualified him from being a perfect priest and sacrifice. But there's other option that the sin was legally charged to him. The sin was legally charged to his account. If there has to be a gospel, there has to be a better way by which sin was accounted to Christ. And this has to be the only way given the nature of Christ. And that leaves us with one way that maintains the integrity of the scriptures and of the person of Christ and the hope of the gospel. He became sin by a legal charge. He was counted, reckoned as a transgressor of the law on account of those that he represented. And that is how God made him to be sin. And Christ became sin for us. He became sin for us. And for here means on behalf of us in a representative way as our substitute. He assumed what we are legally and representatively. And so Christ suffered the guilt of the transgressions of his people. The law of God accounted him guilty of something that he did not commit. And there was no need for anything to be transfused in him to make this transaction work. All he needed was to stand on behalf of his people and take the punishment of their sins on their behalf as he did for Barabbas and all those who are in him that he stood for. And so by union and representation, Jesus claims that these sins that have been put on him are his, and so he suffers for them. He suffers the punishment for the sins that have been put on him because they are his now. But they are his by union, representation, and imputation. And so he could come and say, speaking by the Holy Spirit through David, Psalm 38 verse 1 to 5, listen to this. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your heart displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and are festering because of my foolishness. You have to understand this. Jesus is not saying he has sin in himself. He is talking about his suffering. And in this suffering, he claims our sins as his. He claims our sins as his own iniquities, as his own transgressions, and our foolishness as his own foolishness. Did Jesus become foolish? Because if we say our sin was imparted to Christ, then in a real way, you're also saying, when Jesus says because of his foolishness, you're actually saying that he became foolish at some point. Is that what this text is saying? No. Jesus is speaking to the reality of imputation. It is no legal fiction. Jesus stands 
100% in the place of the sinner and he claims everything about the sinner to have been done by him. So to say this is a legal fiction is to despise the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to make a mockery of his person and his sufferings. But remember the words that go together when you have to understand this teaching is representation, is union and imputation. Jesus Christ made a ransom payment for those who were in prison, the captives. For one to make a ransom payment, they have to be free. They have to be free. They have to have the ability to make the payment. And the payment required that Christ not be a sinner in any way. Otherwise, his payment is not good enough to ransom anybody to freedom. Christ was never in prison because of sin. He had the commandment from the Father to put down his life and to take it back up of his own accord. For no man could take away his life from him. Sin could not take away the life of Christ. Sin could not go on Christ in a way that changed the person of Christ. Christ is he who had the ransom money. He had the redemption price. His blood, his death was the redemption price. His obedience. So the law had already been broken. And so there was no need for him to have the sin put in him or on him as to be infused in his person but only as a penalty, as a penalty. Listen to Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 56, 3. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living. Listen to this, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So what was laid on Christ? It was not some substance of sin that was laid on Christ, but the punishment of it. He was wounded for and because of our transgressions. The transgressions, the iniquities of his people are what were legally charged to him as his own as if he had personally committed them. So in this way, he bore or carried our sins. And so he suffered the consequences of those transgressions as surety and representative of his people. But listen to this. If Christ had our sins imparted to him, then he is no different from the Levitical priesthood. He would still have the same problems as the priesthood of Aaron, which required that Aaron, according to Leviticus 16, that he bring a sin offering for himself, then make atonement for himself and for his household, and then make atonement for everybody else. But that can be true with respect to Jesus. If Jesus ends up with sin on him, like Aaron, 
then Jesus still need another Jesus, another sinless Jesus, to make atonement for him, because he would be no different from us. But God has no more sacrifice left for sin. He only has one. He only has one son. And so, you have no hope. But his priesthood and sacrifice save because of his integrity. The integrity of Christ was not compromised in any way, shape, or form. So if Christ was imparted with our sin, then his righteousness was the righteousness of a sinner. And that saves no one, and we are still in our sins, and are of all men miserable and to be pitied. But the righteousness that we have is from this one that Peter said, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. But the exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21 did not end there. The righteousness of Christ that came from his obedience was tied to the account of the transgressors. Christ was made sin the same way that the sinner was made righteous. There's a parallelism that is happening there. The sinner is made righteous by a legal charge. And so Christ was made a sinner by a legal charge. Oh, that was obvious. The sinner does not become righteous in their own constitution or substance. They continue to battle the same sins as before. And yet in the court of God, they are declared as righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. An alien righteousness. And that's the scandal of the gospel. And the law of God sees them as completely obedient. It has no more claims on them. However, if Christ had sin infused to him, he would also need righteousness to be imputed to him, just like we all. But with Christ Jesus, righteousness is intrinsic to him, intrinsic to his nature. And so it was impossible to make him a sinner in any other way but through imputation. God imputed to us the righteousness that came from the vicarious or penal substitution of Christ. And because that righteousness is imputed to us, we also do not feel or experience that righteousness until we have been glorified. We continue to look to God's testimony that we are accepted in the beloved, that he raised him from the dead to vindicate the righteousness of Christ and his satisfaction of the justice of God on behalf of his people. And here are a few more remarks before we finish the teaching. Hebrews 9 verse 18 to 15 says, for if the blood of bulls and gods and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, listen to this, himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal 
inheritance. So the promise of the eternal inheritance can only be had if Christ offered himself without spot to God. Because if there was any spot found in Christ in that offering, then you and I have no hope. But listen to Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 17 and 19. Peter says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. Why, Peter? Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Look at the elements, the metals, silver, gold. That's the chemistry that I started off the teaching with. So you see, all these things speak about the gospel. But let Peter finish verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The blood of Christ was not corruptible and was not corrupted in any way. And that is why it is precious blood. No infusion of sin to Christ. He was made guilty only by a legal charge. And may the Lord give you understanding and repentance for the sake of his glorious gospel, for the sake of your own salvation. I'm done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I bless you. I thank you for your goodness, mercy. Thank you for these wonderful words that you've given me to preach and to teach. May you call men, as many as have been appointed, to hear and to repent to the knowledge of the truth of Christ. May you grant them the ears to hear, the eyes to see that they may be saved. We thank you for the doctrine of imputation, for this is the heart of the gospel, the transaction of Christ. For if Christ was made sin in any other way than imputation, then we have no hope, because his sacrifice would not have been accepted. We still would be in need of another sacrifice. But thankfully, we know that we are not saved by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, precious blood of Christ, that it no blemish and no spot. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, may you continue to uphold us in the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.